0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Good, Good morning. How are we doing? Sweet. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, have a sick baby at home and 45 minutes on the judgment of Christ. So I'm going to need more energy than that. How are we this morning. Sweet, love that. Um, something about Acoustic Weeks. It's like, we're just like, let's just go down. It's like, no, this is, the Lord is still here, and he's still kind, and he's still worthy of our worship and our praise and adoration. Um, really good to be with you. Uh, real quick, before we dive into the sermon, uh, and it's very long today, so this is going to be quick. Um, we have something coming up in the life of our church I want to make sure you know about. Uh, coming up at the end of August, we are doing uh, something that we uh, call are calling a South Charlotte neighborhood cookout. So what we've noticed over the past uh, few months since moving from gathering in Plaza to gathering here in South End, that there have been a number of folks who have been coming around our church from kind of the greater South Charlotte area. So whether that be that they're new to our church or they moved down there recently for a number of different reasons. Uh, And so while we don't have a community group down there yet, and we're we're praying towards that and hoping uh, for the Lord to open that door, we wanna get those folks together. So if that's you, and I'm gonna let you decide what South Charlotte means to you. So uh, in my mind, it's like here to Rock Hill. So if you are like anywhere in there, throw it all together, whatever, if you would claim South Charlotte, um, Lower South End, Pineville, Ballantyne, Fort Mill, et cetera, et cetera, then we want you to come to this. It's just a chance for you to meet other people who are involved in the life of our church and yet call that part of our city home. And so that's coming up end of the month, RSVP, because it's at one of our members homes and we're just not going to put their address on the internet. So please uh, RSVP for that. All right, we are wrapping up section two of the Apostles Creed about the person and work of Jesus. Jesus. And so far we've looked at what he has done in the past. We've talked about uh, his incarnation. He takes on flesh, enters into humanity. We've talked about his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross and his descension into Hades and his rising again from the dead. And then last week, Dan talked about what he's doing now, that he is currently risen and reigning and interceding and preparing a place for his people. And today, before we leave that behind and move on to the Holy Spirit and his work in the church. I want to focus on the future work of Christ. And here's how the creed says it. It says this, from there, the right hand of God, the throne that he reigns and rules from, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Got to work cut out for us this morning. So grab a Bible, head to Matthew 25. I'm going to encourage you, they're not going to be on the screen this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. That's our gift to you. Matthew 25. We'll get there in a little bit. But as we've started every week, let's stand and let's read and confess what we believe, the Apostles' Creed, together. If you're not a Christian, you can just stand with us and watch as we recite it together. This is the Apostles' Creed. Go ahead, Misty. Thank you. Says this, church, read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before you're seated, let's pray together. Lord, we open our hearts and our minds and our lives to you. So Lord, we pray against any distraction, we pray against any sleepiness, we pray against any bitterness or frustration, we pray against any hard-heartedness in ourselves that would keep us from the word rooting itself and bearing fruit. Lord, so I pray that you would do what you have done for thousands of years, you would take your word by the power of your spirit, put it into our hearts such that we would look more like Jesus. We need you for that task, Lord. It's a weighty subject that we discussed today, Lord, and so we pray for your kindness, your conviction, your grace, your mercy, your truth to guide. We love you, we need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. You can be seated. So growing up, I had what could best be described as a fearful and frightened disposition towards life. So to put it simply, I was the scared kid. I didn't ride my first roller coaster until I was 13, and even then I cried the entire time, which was terribly embarrassing because I had perfectly worked it out to ride next to my middle school crush. Until I believe was 10 or 11, the words of my elementary school teacher that, quote, don't worry, you'll know it's a tornado because it'll sound like a train, suddenly made every thunderstorm sound like a train to where I would spend a night, if not two, every week on the floor of my parents' bedroom. On every 4th of July, while the neighborhood kids were content to stand at opposite ends of the driveway shooting Roman candles at each other, I was perfectly happy standing in the garage free from danger because I knew as silly as they were, they would not light the house on fire. So knowing that about me, it should make a ton of sense when I tell you that my story of conversion, how I came to faith in Jesus was also a moment of fear. I was six years old, sitting on the living room floor of my childhood home, watching a Christian talk show, because that's what we did in the Olson household growing up, where a very, very old man, which with a much too young second wife, tells me that Boris Yeltsin, if you're not familiar, that's like pre-Putin Russian leader, is the Antichrist. And he has 10 reasons why Jesus is going to return in the year 2000, because we were all afraid of Y2K, and how I better repent of my sins and ask Jesus into my heart, or I'm going to be left behind in this thing called the rapture. You seen the movie. Now, I'm not discrediting the work of God in my life to save me. I really do believe that as a six-year-old, I understood I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and only through the work of Jesus can I be made right with God. But I need you to believe me when I say that it was largely the fear of, quote, from there, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead that led me to pray the sinner's prayer at age six. It was largely fear of, quote, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead that led me to walk an aisle or raise a hand at youth camp when I was 12, and when I was 13, and when I was 14, and 15, and 16, and 17. Church kids, you know what I'm talking about. And so I wonder what goes through your mind or your heart when I tell you that today we're talking about Jesus coming back to judge. Maybe like me, it's thoughts back to your childhood, where you're instantly kind of brought back to that place of fear and trepidation. This was the stuff of youth group camp altar calls. This was the stuff of of judgment houses, if you remember that deep cut. And you wonder, this now, even now, drives so much of my Christian activity, this question, will I ever measure up when Christ returns? Or maybe this line brings anxiety or worry or fear, not because of you per se, because you know I'm right with the Lord, but what does this mean for my parent or my friend or my sibling or my coworker or my neighbor? Or maybe it's not fear at all. Maybe for you, this idea that Christ will one day judge, return and judge is really your sticking point with Christianity as a whole. Like the idea of judgment strikes you as something that feels almost anti-God or at least the God you've come to believe The idea of a final judgment feels old-fashioned and outdated in the stuff of fire and brimstone preachers. And so wherever you are today, I think we can all agree this line, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead, can be particularly difficult, particularly jarring, particularly tempting for us to get rid of or push aside or even interpret around in the scriptures what I want to argue today is that while this line, perhaps especially as modern Western Americans, can be particularly difficult, this line is also distinctly biblical. You see, the idea of Jesus returning to judge is not a doctrine built on one obscure passage of the Bible. It's not a doctrine that people use to twist and distort to fill their agenda. It's not built on guessing or speculation. This doctrine is all over the place in the scriptures. In fact, just in the New Testament alone, the judgment and return of Christ is referenced over 300 times. Now, just to put that into perspective for you, that's one in every 13 verses or seven out of every 10 chapters, or 23 out of every 27 books. And it's across the, the authors of the New Testament as well. So you see passages like Paul in 2 Timothy 4. says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Or John in Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to pay each one for what he has done. Or Peter in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is all over the place in the scriptures, but perhaps what may be most shocking is that the best picture of the return and judgment of Christ comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 25. So hopefully you're there by now. Here's what I kind of want to do today. I want to just walk through the passage. What does Jesus himself say about his return and judgment? And then I want to deal with some of the difficulties that we have with this truth as modern Westerners. How we wrestle with this and push back against it and want to kind of get out from under the judgment of Christ. And then I'm going to close by hopefully turning this line from one of either objection or dread and fear to one of worship and longing. So that's kind of where we're headed today. We'll start in Matthew 25. Now, this passage comes at the end of a longer sermon by Jesus all about the end of the world. So he's brought his disciples up to the Mount of Olives and he's told them there's going to be a future day after my resurrection and ascension where I'm going to return. And so he's trying to tell them about this and they're like, when, what's it gonna be like? And he's already told them, it's like a thief in the night. It's gonna be unexpected. Only God the Father knows when it's going to happen, but it's going to be undeniable. Trumpets will, will blast, lightning will shoot across the sky. And we get to the end of this kind of teaching from Jesus, and that's where we pick it up in Matthew 25. So hopefully you're there. Matthew 25, we'll start in verse 31. We doing all right? Sweet. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one, from one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left." Pause there. So Jesus tells us at the conclusion of history, whenever that occurs, only God the Father knows, Jesus will come in glory, and all of the nations, all of the people on earth, will be gathered before Him, and Jesus will separate them into two groups: sheep on the left, sheep on the right, goats on the left. Now, this is a a prophecy and a metaphor, a picture he pulls directly out of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, where there's a promise that this will happen, that one day the Lord will return, separate the sheep, his people, from the goats. Those were not his people. So just clear right off the bat, you need to know two things. One, there's two groups when it comes to Jesus. You either team Jesus or not team Jesus. That's the clear. There's no middle ground with if Jesus is Lord and Savior or not. He's either Lord and Savior, sheep or not. It's also important to recognize here that Jesus isn't declaring or making people sheep and goats. He comes and separates based on what they already are, sheep and goats. That's what a shepherd does, and that's what Jesus says he will come to do when the end comes. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, "'Come, you who are blessed by my Father, "'inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. "'For I was hungry, and you gave me food.' I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So the determining factor, the way Jesus distinguishes between the so-called sheep and the goats, evidently is is this. The sheep are the ones who, in one way or another, welcomed Jesus, accepted Jesus. Not just in a spiritual, internal, I prayed a prayer and said I believed in him sort of sense, but in something tangible, something active, something concrete. Jesus says the righteous, the sheep, fed him and clothed him and welcomed him. And if people did that, Jesus says they get to spend eternity with him and the Father in what he calls the kingdom, eternal life with God. So the question then is, what does Jesus mean exactly by the righteous doing these things for him, by welcoming him and clothing him and feeding him? And that's what we read in verse 37. So Jesus says very clearly, how you welcomed me, here's how you welcomed me, how you clothed me, how you fed me by doing that for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Now, Jesus is very specific here. He doesn't say if you fed any person who was hungry. Now, the Bible does challenge us to feed those who are hungry. But specifically here, Jesus is talking about caring for, welcoming, loving, serving those who are followers of him. Those who belong to the kingdom of God. That's who Jesus calls his brothers and sisters. For example, Matthew 12 verse 50 Says for who Jesus Jesus talking, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So that means Jesus is saying in Matthew 25, He knows if we're sheep who inherit his eternal kingdom by whether or not we tangibly provide for other Christians around us in need. Tracking so far? Now let me make sure I'm being abundantly clear. Jesus is not saying sheep are welcome in his kingdom because they served those in need. Let me say that again. Jesus is not saying or teaching that sheep are welcomed into his kingdom because they served those in need, but rather serving those in need is evidence they're a sheep who belong in the kingdom. Or I'll say it this way. Jesus isn't saying that people are saved by what they do, but he is absolutely saying that the things they do reveal whether or not they are truly saved. This is shown clearly in other places of scripture as well, most notably 1 John. It's time and time again, I'll just give you one. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, and in the context, love his brothers and sisters, does not know God. Because God is love. So in the first few verses of Matthew 25, we see this, that when Jesus returns, and he will return, when he comes, he will judge. And those who are sheep, who have welcomed Jesus, evidenced by how they love and serve other Christians, will enter into eternal life in the kingdom of God. All right, tracking so far on that. We should all be like, that's, that's good. We like that part, eternal kingdom, that sounds awesome. This is where it gets sticky. This is the next part, Jesus returns, and he addresses now the goats, Verse 41. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus repeats everything he just said, but now he puts it in reverse. So the first group cared for Jesus by caring for his people. Their welcome, their provision for God's people was evidence of their welcome and provision for Jesus himself. Likewise, or the flip, is that the second group of people's unwillingness to welcome and provide for God's people is evidence of their rejection of Jesus himself. And the consequence of that rejection of Jesus is, according to Jesus himself, eternal separation from him. It's what he describes with images like eternal fire in verse 41 and eternal punishment in verse 46, which is the imagery Jesus uses elsewhere in the Gospels for what you and I call hell. in light of the sermon a few weeks ago, Gehenna. The state of perpetual torment via eternal separation from God. So let me just kind of summarize Matthew 25, 31 through 46 for us. This is what the creed affirms. This is what Jesus teaches. One day, Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge. And those who welcomed him, evidenced by their tangible love for other Christians, will inherit the kingdom of God, will inherit eternal life. And those who did not welcome him, Evidenced by their lack of tangible love for other Christians, will inherit eternal punishment. All right, clear on Matthew twenty-five. All right, here's all I want to do now. I want to pause, and we need to chat. Okay because let's face it, this idea of hell or eternal punishment is admittedly one of the most difficult ideas about Jesus, particularly for us as modern Westerners. We hear Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, and all of these sorts of questions rise to the surface. I think they do for you. I know they do for me. Questions like, how can a loving God send people to hell? Doesn't that seem a bit extreme and unlike him? Or how can Christians enjoy heaven if they know that others, especially family and friends, are imprisoned in hell for all eternity? Or what about those with no opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and respond? Wouldn't punishing them make God unfair? Or, okay, I get punishment for a little while, but why does it have to be eternal punishment? Why does the punishment have to last forever? And that's just a few of the many questions that might arise in your mind, or, if not your mind, the mind of those you love who do not worship him. these are deep and important questions. These are not just theological, heady, fun-to-debate questions. There are real people and real lives and real eternities at stake in these questions. So here's what I want to do. I want to wrestle with some of this for a few minutes, a little bit of a, a kind of an apologetic, if you will. But instead of answering these questions, I instead want to flip it, and I want to ask you some questions. If you're like, that's unfair, I have the mic, I can do what I want. I want to give you three questions just to chew on. So if you're wrestling with this, if you're wrestling with the judgment of Christ, if you're wrestling with the eternal punishment for those who reject him, if you're wrestling with these questions, or if you're hopefully you are walking closely with someone who is wrestling with these questions, someone who's wrestling with doubts about Jesus and what he's done, let me just help you and give you some things to think about. Okay. Just going to try to be brief. We'll see what happens. Question number one, just some questions to chew on when it comes to Christ's judgment. Question one, is God loving? Is God loving? if he doesn't judge. It's the first thing I want you to wrestle with. Is God loving if he doesn't judge? We are quick to say that there's a problem with God's love if he judges. Like if God judges and condemns the wicked, those who do not turn from their sin, he's not loving. How can a loving God send people to hell? But I just want for a minute to reverse the question. Rather than asking, is God loving if he judges? It's worth considering, is God loving if he doesn't judge. And to do that, let me just um, give us a a mental picture for a second. So if you just go there with me for a second, I want you to imagine a world where hell isn't a reality. Imagine just with me for a minute, a world in which there is no hell, there is no eternal punishment, where there's no substantial consequence for evil or sin or anything of that nature. So just mentally go there with me for a second. Imagine with me this, God creates everything. Everything that you and I know, God who in his own breath breathes life into humanity, puts literal air into our lungs so that we come alive by his spirit. Now imagine God puts those created humans into a garden where he has provided for them everything they could ever need or want or hope to have, including unhindered forever access to him. And then imagine God watching as those humans completely turn their back on him. Imagine them taking every single thing that he meant for good and twisting it and distorting it towards evil. Imagine him watching as those humans created in his image, hate each other and hurt each other and harm each other and abuse each other. Imagine watching them steal and kill and destroy everything around them, wreaking utter destruction and havoc on the good world that he had made, including his people. Imagine all of this resorting in unthinkable horrors like destitute poverty and injustice, and sexual abuse, and racism, and sexism, and on down the list. And imagine this God watching generation after generation after generation on a global scale over thousands of years these sorts of evils play out, okay? You have that picture in your head? It's pretty dark, I'm sorry. Now imagine God witnessing all of that, all of that injustice, all of that wickedness, all of that evil, all of that pain, and then his response being, meh, not a big deal, yeah, it's okay. Eh, all good. I got I'm loving, so I'm not going to step in here. Does that sound like a loving God to you? It doesn't to me. And I know that because I get upset if I go to a friend about something that just hurt me, and they're not matching my level of anger and frustration. Right? Like if I sit down with Lindsay, and I'm like, Lindsay, I'm so mad about this. And she's like, eh. I'm like, you don't like love me more. <laughs> How could you be so unloving that you would not get angry at the very things that just hurt me? And yet we expect that standard of God. We expect him to stand back and, meh. Theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. I think this is really helpful when she writes, We must believe in hell because there is no other way to take seriously the nature and scale of evil in the world. We must believe in hell because there's no other way to do justice to the victims of darkness. We must believe in hell because without it, Christian faith is sentimental and evasive, unable to stand up to reality in this world. Without an unflinching understanding of the radical nature of evil, Christian faith would be nothing but a suburban bedtime story. This is why in many, many parts of the world, those in particular that are not shaped by Western culture like we are, where people are faced with injustice after injustice after injustice, their anger or hang up or doubt when it comes to God is not that he's too just, but rather that he's too merciful. To many in other cultures outside of our own, the irrational thing about God is that He would see it fit to show some people mercy who are responsible for wickedness and evil. That to them is the unacceptable thing about the God of the Bible. So again, it's worth us considering is God loving if He doesn't judge? Which then leads to the second question I want us to consider, and that is this Do you really want God to be fair? Do you really want God to be fair? That's a second doubt that often arises in our minds when we hear about the judgment of Christ, right? That's not fair. Let's just consider that claim together for a second. Starting here. What is fairness? What is fairness? Fairness, as I would define it, and I think this is a fair definition, is people getting what they asked for and deserved, right? So if you work for 40 hours and your employer pays you for 30, that's not fair, if you sell a car for $10,000, that's the agreed-upon contractual price, and someone shows up with a check for $5,000 and then drives off with your car, that's not fair. When you pull up to a four-way stop sign intersection and someone goes out of turn, that's not fair. Fairness is people getting what they asked for and deserved. Now, what does that have to do with hell? Well, I think we have to rethink how we think about hell, because often we think about hell as God punishing people who are kicking and screaming and begging for him. Like they they want to be with God, but God is being mean and won't let them, and that's not fair. But That's not the picture of the scriptures when it comes to hell hell, according to the scriptures, is the place for those who have chosen to reject Jesus in his authority. And if that is true, then eternal punishment is a completely fair and logical consequence. Think about it this way. If you spend your entire life not wanting slash rejecting the peace, presence, and kingship of Jesus, then hell is when God lets you experience the fullness of what you've wanted. Let me say that again. If you spend your entire life not wanting slash rejecting the peace, presence, and kingship of Jesus, then hell is when God lets you experience the fullness of what you've always wanted. It's when he gives you over fully to the choice you made on earth. God says essentially, if what you want is a life absent of my rule and reign, you can have it. In fact, you can have an eternity of it. But that also means an eternity absent of all of the good things God created and allows people to enjoy. You see, the world right now that we live in is full of things that God in his mercy has allowed everyone to enjoy. Theologians call this common grace. Things like life and breath and beauty, creation, relationships, friendships, sex, food, drinks, and the list goes on. All of these things God allows all people to enjoy, whether or not they follow and trust in him. God allows us to enjoy those because he is gracious. But here's the thing, if we spend our entire lives rejecting God, refusing to acknowledge him as the giver of all good things, which Romans 1 says includes those who never hear the good news of Jesus, that they stand guilty of rejection because creation testifies to God and his goodness, there will come a day where he allows us to experience the full consequences of that rejection. This J.I. Packer, he puts it really succinctly and grabbable. He says this, rebels will be judged as rebels to be rejected by the master whom they rejected first. So the question becomes, do you really want God to be fair? Because being fair is to give those who reject God exactly what they asked for, eternity free from him. In fact, the only thing not fair about the judgment of Jesus is his free offer of salvation through faith in him. Implicit in the gospel is unfairness implicit is the gospel is that those who deserve judgment can have a way out from under it through faith in Christ. That's not fair. Which then, okay, in light of those two questions, maybe you're thinking, all right, that still sounds extreme, especially if it's forever. Like, okay, I can get behind judgment for a little bit, but, but judgment forever just seems like too much, which then leads me to a third and final question. And that is this, how holy do you think God is? That's question number three. How holy do you think God is? Here's something I think we all understand, and I'm trying to prove that to us. Who the offense is against dictates the severity of the punishment. You tracking? Who the offense is against dictates the severity of the punishment. Let me give you an example. I gave this analogy a few months ago. We talked about Colossians 3 and the wrath of God and how love and wrath are not contradictory to each other. But I'll just bring it back here because I think it fits. Imagine you came over to my house later this afternoon with a baseball bat. Right? Like you were just like, I heard the sermon, baseball bat to Tim's house, right? And you just start hitting my fence. I'm like a little bit annoyed, mostly freaked out, kind of frustrated because I just replaced some of it. But overall, like I'm I'm okay. I'm gonna hide in the house, be okay. Now imagine you start hitting my cars with your baseball bat. I'm gonna be more upset because I love my 2018 Honda Odyssey. Like that thing is gold. A little more upset, right? Because a van is more valuable than a fence most of the time. Now imagine you start swinging at my family, my wife, or one of my two kids, right? Then the level of consequence is going to go up for you on behalf of me. Because we know this, right? This is how the U.S. judicial system works, right? Those acts would accrue varying degrees of punishment. If you mess up someone's object with something they possess, that has a varying degree of punishment from you taking a human life, Right? This is how our judicial system works. Who or what the offense is against, their worth and value dictates the severity of the punishment. So here's what this means for us. If God is the picture the scriptures paint, if he is who the Bible says he is, if he is the one who lives in unapproachable light, where his radiant glory shines across his creation, where every time someone comes into his presence in the scriptures, they have to turn away because of how holy he is, where the entire universe bends at his will. If all of that is true, and if every sin at its core is an offense against that God, think Psalm 51, then that would dictate the severity of the punishment. And if God is that awesome, that wonderful, that majestic, that holy, then it is surely not outlandish to think that rebelling against him and rejecting his ways warrants a punishment as seemingly extreme as eternity. And in case that has not yet convinced you, or in case we're still tempted to think, yeah, but sin doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Why does God die for it? You just think about that. If sin is like, eh, or we can kind of deal with it on the surface, or we can kind of brush it under or punish it for a little bit. Why does God himself die? Because it's that big of a deal because of who it is against. All right. Take a breath. All right. Take a breath. Again, I don't, I don't think those three are going to convince you today, just stuff I want you to think about, wrestle with, with the spirit. Let me lead us towards the close. So I started by saying that I, I had three goals for today. The first was to show us what Jesus himself says from Matthew 25 that those who welcomed him, evidenced by their tangible love for other Christians, will inherit eternal life, and those who have not will inherit eternal punishment. We dealt with some objections and questions, but here's my third goal. I want to help move this line from dread, fear, and objection to repentance, worship, and celebration. All right, so I want this to not be a line you simply debate a bunch or are frustrated about or are worried to confess. I want it to be a line you say with confidence and hope and longing. So let me help us do that real quick. I was afraid of a lot of things growing up. That's how I started. Nothing was as fearful as a child than Dave Olson. That's my dad. Now, my dad was not abusive in any sense of the word. He loved us very much. I have a great relationship with my father today, but he was strict. He came from a military household, and he ran our household like a military household. He was disciplined. He had his rules. We followed his rules. If we didn't follow his rules, there was punishment. My mom, on the other hand, was not strict at all. My mom was a great mom. She listens to these sermons. Great mom, love my mom, (laughs) wonderful mom. A lot of you know my mom, she's great. She's just very, very lenient. Like you could just know. If I ask mom, I'm gonna get away with it. Like that's just how it goes. And so growing up, there was one line that you knew if my mom said you had pushed her to the edge. Like you just knew if she said this, you were like, oh, I'm in trouble. And that line, and maybe your parents or your guardian said this to you was, just wait until your father gets home. Like Even thinking about it when I was writing the sermon was like shivers down my <laughs> spine, right? Like It's just like still, even now, as a man in my 30s, I'm like, that's scary, right? But here's the deal. That same line that brought so much fear and trepidation was also a line that occasionally I love to hear, particularly on Fridays, because Fridays in the Olson household growing up was pizza and movie night, specifically Pizza Hut, Pepperoni Stuffed Crust, and Disney Channel Original Movies. Nice, 90s kids, I love it. And so if it was Friday and we got off school, we would ask my mom the same question. Is it pizza time? Is it pizza time? Is it movie time? Is it pizza? Can we do that now? And she would say the exact same line, just wait until your father gets home. Same line, way different reactions. What's the difference? Well, I know what awaits me when my dad returns. Same line, way different reactions and responses all based around what awaits me when dad gets home. Church, judgment is coming. You can't get around that in the New Testament. If we're going to be Bible people, which as a church, we want to be Bible people. We believe the scriptures. You just can't get very far without seeing Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. But judgment is only something to be feared by those who stand guilty and condemned. Judgment is only something to dread for those who await punishment, but for those who stand under the banner of not guilty, for those who mourn and long for comfort, for those who weep and are sick of their tears, this line is not a line of fear and dread. It's a line of hope and longing. From there, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, meaning he can and will make all things new. Meaning he will right all of the wrongs, meaning he will bring us home to be with him forever. I mean, that's the beautiful news we skip right over in Matthew 25. We want to rush right to look at the goats. Let's talk about the goats. Is he actually going to judge the goats? But look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Now that's an incredible line. If you read the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is obsessed with the people of God figuring out how to be blessed by God. That's like one of the huge overarching themes. And he says, here's the blessing that's going to come. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit, be given. You don't work for an inheritance. You're given an inheritance. Receive the gift of the kingdom that has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. So for those who are in Christ, this is a line of joy. When the early church 2,000 years ago would stand up and say this line in the midst of persecution and suffering and very real threats of death, this was not a line of fear. This was a line of, please, any day now, come soon, Lord Jesus, to judge the living and the dead. He's coming to right all wrongs. He's coming to make all things new. So hear me on this. And here's where I want to lead us towards the close. This line does not have to be a statement of fear for you. If you hear this line and you are filled with fear or dread or uncertainty, let me encourage you from the scriptures. You can be ready. You can be welcomed as a sheep into the kingdom of God. How? By welcoming Jesus, by putting your faith and trust in him. You can be given and guaranteed an inheritance, a place as a child of God welcomed into his kingdom forever. 2 Peter 3, we read Peter's encouragement to the church in light of Christ's return. So Peter would have been on the, on the sermon or on the Mount of Olives hearing this sermon in Matthew 25. But 30 years later, the church is like, when's Jesus coming back? Is he slow? Is he delayed? And this is what Peter encourages the church with. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved so much in that one word, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I just encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, don't rail against the judgment of God. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not loving. Those are real questions to wrestle with. But here's the reality of the Bible points us to the fact that Christ has not yet come to judge the living and the dead is evidence of God's love for you. It's evidence of his kindness and his mercy and his grace. He's not slow. He's not delayed. He's not trying to do some things before he can, he's waiting in patience that you would repent and turn to him. So view that as his kindness, as his mercy, as his goodness to you, that you are here right now, even hearing about the good news of Jesus. Because here's the promise of the gospel, that the very Jesus who promises to come again, surrounded by angels, fire in his eyes. That's the picture of Revelation. Not a little baby in a manger. When Jesus returns the second time, it's fire in his eyes, surrounded by angels riding on a white horse as risen and ruling king with lightning flashing across the sky, that very Jesus, the Jesus who comes to judge is the same Jesus who goes to the cross so that you can be judged as pardoned and forgiven and washed clean and righteous. That's why they're called righteous. That's why the sheep are called righteous in Matthew 25, not because they took care of these people, but because Christ has declared them and made them righteous through his perfect record. So therefore they serve in love. That's the good news of the gospel on offer to you that the very one who comes to judge also himself stood condemned so you could not be judged. Guilty, but righteous. So, this doesn't have to be a statement of fear for you. You can repent, you can believe, you can trust in Jesus. But, church, let me also challenge you this doesn't have to be a statement of fear about those you love. Don't let the judgment of God stay as a theological point to debate don't, let me say it this way, don't debate yourself out of worrying about your family and friends. Don't debate yourself out of the call on your life from God to share the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Romans 10. Paul wrestles with this very question we're wrestling with. What does this mean for those who never hear? That's the question he's trying to answer in Romans 10. And this is what he says. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? These are the same questions we ask. How are they going to call on Jesus if they don't know about Jesus? And how are they going to know about Jesus if they never hear about him? And then he keeps going. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What happens to those who never hear the good news of the gospel and therefore repent of their sins through faith in Jesus? They stand condemned before God and face eternal judgment because of their sin. What does Paul say that means for us who believe? Not to have some debates sitting comfortably around a living room during community group time, but to go take the gospel to the nations. So let me just pastorally just prod you a little bit. If this in particular is a huge sticking point for you, like you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, but this exclusionary, uh, exclusive, I have to believe in Jesus. What about those who doesn't hear the seem unfair? Like if that, if that's the sticking point where you would say, I believe in Jesus, but this doctrine in particular in the creed just messes with me. Let me just pastorally, maybe just kind of nudge you a little bit. That may be the Holy Spirit actually working in your heart to call you to the nations. So if this for you is you're like this one in particular, I don't like this one in particular, that could actually be a prompting from the Lord for you to go take the gospel to those who have not heard. He may actually use that frustration. If you would be willing to give it to him in your prayers to actually shift your heart, to quit your job and move overseas to actually move into the darkest parts of our city with the good news of the gospel, to actually walk across the street to your neighbor, to actually go across the cubicle to your coworker or the Zoom call if you're remote, whatever it is. This might actually be a prompting from the Lord, a, a holy discontentment and frustration that he might use to send you to those who will have never heard the good news of the gospel that even today might be a marked moment where the spirit works in your life such that you go, you know what? This week, I might have to have some conversations about quitting, packing up what I have, and moving somewhere where folks don't know about Jesus. Maybe today it might be, my job's remote anyway. I can just get up and go. Let's have some conversations about me taking the gospel to the nations. Let the frustration, what about those who never hear, not be a point of debate, but a point of sending and a point of praying and a point of giving, and a point of going, because the question is, what happens to those who don't know Jesus might be a launching point for you into the mission of God. Jesus rules, and he reigns. He's seated on the throne, and there he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's a a weighty line. It's a powerful line, but it's what we believe. It's what we hold. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We love you. We stand aware of your holiness in comparison to our distinct lack of holiness, and your righteousness in comparison to our unrighteousness, and your worthiness in comparison to our lack of worthiness. So Lord, we confess our need for you. Lord, we confess our doubts about this reality, this truth. Lord, your scriptures are so clear and so evident and so repetitive that christ is going to come and that judgment will happen lord and so i pray that you would do what only you can do in our hearts by the power of the spirit you would shift us from frustration over that reality fear of that reality objection to that reality and instead you would silence our minds and shift our hearts into longing for that reality Christ coming to judge the living and the dead is good news that you are coming to right all wrongs to make all things new to bring in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more crying and no more pain and no more weeping and no more tears and so well, Lord we, we say that line not with dread but with longing Lord will, will Christ come soon or would you make that the deepest cry of our hearts Lord Jesus come quickly come quickly, right the wrongs, bring justice to the injustice, bring righteousness to what is evil, bring restitution to what is broken, would you come quickly? I want to give us a moment. We've said a lot of words, so I just want to give us some time before we move on from this moment of prayer to just sit silent with the Lord. The band's going to come back up to get ready to lead us in worship in just a second, but I just want to give us a little bit of space before we sing and respond how we usually do, just to be silent, to, to ask the Lord, what are you stirring in me from your word? Before we pray, before we sing, before we take communion, Lord, what are you stirring in my heart? What are you pressing on me about? Maybe it's Maybe it's for you, it's repentance for the first time, trusting in Jesus for the first time, putting your hope in him for salvation for the first time. Maybe for you, it's a call to the nations, a call to take the gospel to the unreached parts of the world who have not heard about the good news of Jesus. Maybe for you, it's it's surrender. Surrender that this has been a sticking point that you've wanted to debate and push back against. and interpret around, but you just want to surrender. Lord, I trust you, and I trust your word, and I trust that this is what it says, and it's true, and help me to not only trust it, but to think it's good, because you are good. Let me just leave you with those three prompts, some space for silence for just a moment.